Section 8 of Selections of the History of the Franks. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ryan Fahey, Fairfield, Connecticut. Selections of the History of the Franks by Gregory of Tours. Translated by Ernest Brayhout. Book number 5, chapters 1 to 20. Here begins the fifth book with happy auspices. Amen. I am weary of relating the details of the civil wars that mightily plague the nation and kingdom of the Franks, and the worst of it is that we see in them the beginning of that time of woe which the Lord foretold. Father shall rise against son, son against father, brother against brother, kinsman against kinsman. They should have been deterred by the examples of former kings who were slain by their enemies as soon as they were divided. How often has the very city of cities, the great capital of the whole earth, been laid low by civil war and again, when it ceased, has risen as if from the ground. Would that you too, O kings, were engaged in battles like those in which your fathers struggled, that the heathen terrified by your union might be crushed by your strength. Remember how Clovis won your great victories, how he slew opposing kings, crushed wicked peoples and subdued their lands, and left to you complete and unchallenged dominion over them. And when he did this, he had neither silver nor gold, such as you now have in your treasuries. What is your object? What do you seek after? What have you not in plenty? In your homes there are luxuries in abundance. In your storehouses wine, grain, and oil abound. Gold and silver are piled up in your treasuries. One thing you lack, without peace you have not the grace of God. Why does one take from another? Why does one desire what another has? I beg of you, beware of this saying of the apostle. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Examine carefully the books of the ancients, and you will see what civil wars beget. Read what Erosius writes of the Carthaginians, who says that after 700 years their city and country were ruined, and adds, What preserved this city so long? Union. What destroyed it after such a period? Disunion. Beware of disunion. Beware of civil wars which destroy you and your people. What else is to be expected but that your army will fall and that you will be left without strength and be crushed and ruined by hostile peoples? And, king, if civil war gives you pleasure, govern that impulse which the apostle says is urgent within man. Let the spirit struggle against the flesh and the vices fall before the virtues. And be free and serve your chief who is Christ, you who were once a fettered slave of the root of evil. 1. Sigebert's son, Childebert, not yet five years old, is made king. Chilperic seizes Brunhilda and keeps her in exile at Rouen. 2. Chilperic sent his son Merovich to Poitiers with an army, but he disobeyed his father's orders and came to Tours and spent there the holy days of Easter. His army did great damage to that district. Merovich himself, in pretense that he wanted to go to see his mother, went to ruin and there met Queen Brunhilde and married her. Upon news of this, Chilperic became very bitter because Merovich had married his uncle's widow, contrary to divine law and the canons, and quicker than speech he hastened to the above-mentioned city. But when they learned that he was determined to separate them, 
they took refuge in the church of St. Martin that is built of boards upon the wall of the city. But when the king on his arrival strove to entice them thence by many artifices, and they refused to trust him, thinking that he was acting treacherously, he took oath to them, saying, If it was the will of God, he himself would not attempt to separate them. They accepted this oath and came out of the church, and Chilperic kissed them and gave them a fitting welcome and feasted with them. But after a few days he returned to Soissons, taking Merovich with him. 3. Godin makes an attack on Chilperic's territory, but is defeated. Chilperic suspects Merovich of being involved in the attack. Godin's wife, after his death, marries a notorious character, Rauching. 3. Continued. Godin's wife married Rauching, a man full of every vanity, swollen with haughtiness, wanton with pride, who treated those under him in such a way that one could not perceive that he had any human feeling in him. And he vented his rage on his own people beyond the limits of human wickedness and folly, and committed unspeakable wrongs. For whenever a slave held a candle for him at dinner, as the custom is, he would make him bare his legs and hold the candle against them until it went out. When it was lighted, he would do the same thing again until the legs of the slave who held the candle were burned all over. And if he uttered a cry or tried to move from that place to another, a naked sword at once threatened him. And when he wept, Rauching could scarcely contain himself for delight. Certain ones tell the story that two of his slaves at that time loved one another, namely a man and a maid, a thing that often happens. And when this love had lasted a space of two years or more, they were united together and took refuge in the church. When Rauching found it out, he went to the bishop of the place and demanded that his slaves be returned to him at once and said they would not be punished. Then the bishop said to him, You know what respect should be paid to the churches of God. You cannot take them unless you give a pledge of their permanent union and likewise proclaim that they shall remain free from every bodily punishment. When he had continued silent for a long time in doubtful thought, he finally turned to the bishop and placed his hands on the altar and swore, saying, They shall never be parted by me, but I will rather cause them to continue in this union permanently, because although it is annoying to me that this was done without my consent, still I welcome this feature of it, that he has not married a maid belonging to another, nor she another's slave." The bishop, in a simple-hearted way, believed the crafty fellow's promise and restored the slaves under the promise that they would not be punished. Rauching took them and, thanking the bishop, went home. He at once directed a tree to be cut down and the trunk cut off close to the branches and split with wedges and hollowed out. He ordered the earth to be dug to a depth of three or four feet and half the trunk put in the trench. Then he placed the maid there as if she were dead and ordered them to throw the man in on top. And he put the covering on and filled the trench and buried them alive, saying, I have not broken my oath that they should never be separated. When this was reported to the bishop, he ran swiftly, and fiercely rebuking the man, he finally succeeded in having them uncovered. However, it was only the man who was alive when dragged out. He found the girl suffocated. In such actions, Rauching showed himself very wicked, having no other aptitude except in loud laughter and trickery and every perversity. Therefore, he justly met a fitting death, since he so behaved himself when he enjoyed this life, but I shall tell of this later. 4. In these days, Rocolinus, being sent by Chilperic, 
came to Tours with great boasting and pitching camp beyond the Loire, he sent messengers to us that we ought to drag from the holy church Gunthrum, who was at that time wanted for the death of Theodobert. If we would not do it, he would give orders to burn the city with fire and all its suburbs. On hearing this, we sent messengers to him, saying that what he asked to have done had not been done from ancient time. Moreover, the holy church could not now be violated. If it should be, it would not be well for him or for the king who had given this command. Let him rather stand in awe of the holiness of the bishop whose power only the day before had given strength to paralytic limbs. But he had no fear of such words, and while he was dwelling in a house belonging to the church beyond the river Loire, he tore down the house itself, which had been built with nails. The people of Mans, who had come on that occasion with him, carried the nails off, filling their bags, and they destroyed the grain and laid everything waste. But while Rocolinus was engaged on this, he was struck by God, and becoming saffron color from the royal disease, he sent harsh commands, saying, Unless you cast Duke Gunthrum out of the church today, I will destroy every green thing around the city so that the country will be ready for the plow. Meantime, the sacred day of Epiphany came, and he began to be in greater and greater torture. Then, after taking counsel with his people, he crossed the river and approached the city. And when the clergy were hastening from the cathedral to the holy church, singing psalms, he rode on horseback behind the cross, preceded by his standards. But when he entered the holy church, his rage and threats cooled, and going back to the cathedral, he could take no food on that day. Then, being very short of breath, he departed for Poitiers. Now these were the days of Holy Lent, during which he often ate young rabbits. And after setting for the first of March the actions by which he meant to ruin and find the citizens of Poitiers, he rendered up his life on the preceding day, and so his pride and insolence ceased. 5. At that time Felix, Bishop of Nantes, wrote me a letter full of insults, writing also that my brother had been slain because he had killed a bishop, being himself greedy for the bishopric. But the reason Felix wrote this was because he wanted an estate belonging to the church, and when I would not give it, he was full of rage and vented on me, as I have said, a thousand insults. I finally replied to him, Remember the words of the prophet, Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field. They are not going to inhabit the earth alone, are they? I wish you had been bishop of Marseille, for ships would never have brought oil or other goods there, but only paper, that you might have greater opportunity for writing to defame honest men. It is the scarcity of paper that sets a limit to your wordiness. He was a man of unlimited greed and boastfulness. Now I shall pass over these matters, not to appear like him, and merely tell how my brother passed from the light of day, and how swift a vengeance the Lord visited upon his assassin. The blessed Tetricus, bishop of the church of Langres, who was already growing old, expelled the deacon Lampadio from his place as procurator, and my brother, in his desire to aid the poor men whom Lampadio had wickedly despoiled, joined in bringing about his humiliation, and thus incurred his hatred. Meantime, the blessed Tetricus had an apoplectic stroke, and when the poultices of the doctors did him no good, the clergy were disquieted, and seeing they were bereft of their shepherd, they asked for Mondaric. The king granted their request, and he was given the tonsure and ordained bishop, with the understanding that while the blessed Tetricus lived, he should govern the town of Tonnerre as archpriest and dwell there. 
and when his predecessor died, he should succeed him. But while he lived in the town, he incurred the king's anger, for it was charged against him that he had furnished supplies and made gifts to King Sigebert when he was marching against his brother Guntram. And so he was dragged from the town and thrust off into exile on the bank of the Rhone in a certain tower that was very small and had lost its roof. Here he lived for nearly two years to his great hurt, and then through the intercession of the blessed bishop Nicetius, he returned to Lyon and dwelt with him for two months. But since he could not prevail on the king to restore him to the place from which he had been expelled, he fled in the night and passed over to Sigebert's kingdom, and was made bishop of the village of Arisitum, with fifteen parishes more or less under him. These the Goths had held at first, and now Dalmatius, bishop of Rhodes, judges them. When he went away, the people of Langray again requested as bishop Sylvester, a kinsman of ours and of the blessed Tetricus. Now they asked for him at the instigation of my brother. Meantime, the blessed Tetricus passed away, and Sylvester received the tonsure, and was ordained priest, and took the whole authority over the property of the church. And he made preparations to go and receive the blessing of the bishops at Lyon. While this was going on, he was stricken by an attack of epilepsy, having been long a victim of the disease, and being more cruelly bereft of his senses than before, he kept continually uttering a moaning cry for two days, and on the third day breathed his last. After this, Lampadius, who had lost his position and his means as is described above, united with Sylvester's son in hatred of Peter the deacon, plotting and asserting that his father had been killed by Peter's evil arts. Now the son, being young and light-minded, was aroused against him, accusing him in public of murder. Upon hearing this, Peter carried his case before the holy bishop Nicetius, my mother's uncle, and went to Lyon, and there, in the presence of Bishop Siagrius, and many other bishops, as well as secular princes, he cleared himself by oath of ever having had any part in Sylvester's death. But two years later, being urged to it again by Lampadius, Sylvester's son followed Peter the deacon on the road, and killed him with a lance wound. When the deed was done, Peter was taken from that place, and carried to the town of Dijon, and buried beside the holy Gregory, our great-grandfather. But Sylvester's son fled and passed over to King Chilperic, leaving his property to the treasury of King Guntram. And when he was wandering through distant parts because of the crime he had committed, and there was no safe place for him to dwell in, at length, I suppose, innocent blood called upon the divine power against him, and when he was traveling in a certain place, he drew his sword and slew a man who had done him no harm. And the man's kinsmen, filled with grief at the death of their relative, roused the people, and drawing their swords, they cut him in pieces and scattered him limb by limb. Such a fate did the wretch meet by God's just judgment, so that he who slew an innocent kinsman should not himself live longer in guilt. Now this happened to him in the third year. After Sylvester's death, the people of Langray again demanded a bishop, and received Papalus, who had once been archdeacon at Autun. According to report, he did many wicked deeds, which are omitted by us, that we may not seem to be disparagers of our brethren. However, I shall not fail to mention what his end was. In the eighth year of his episcopate, while he was making the round of the parishes and domains of the church, one night, as he slept, the blessed Tetricus appeared to him with threatening face and said, What are you doing here, Papalus? Why do you pollute my sea? Why do you invade my church? 
Why do you so scatter the flock that was put in my charge? Yield your place, leave the sea, go far from this territory. And so speaking, he struck the rod he had in his hand sharply against Papalus's breast. Upon this, Papalus woke up, and while he was thinking what this meant, a sharp pang darted in that place, and he was tortured with the keenest pain. He loathed food and drink, and awaited the approach of death. Why more? He died on the third day with a rush of blood from the mouth. Then he was carried forth and buried at Langray. In his place, the abbot Mummelus, called also Bonus, was made bishop. To him, many give great praise, that he is chaste, sober, moderate, very ready for every goodness, a friend of justice, and a zealous lover of charity. When he took the bishopric, he perceived that Lampadius had taken much of the church property by fraud, and by spoiling the poor had gathered lands, vineyards, and slaves, and he ordered him to be stripped of all and driven out from his presence. He now lives in the greatest want and gets his living by his own hands. Let this be enough on these matters. 6. In the same year as that mentioned above, that is, the year in which Sigebert died and Childebert, his son, began to reign, many miracles were done at the tomb of the blessed Martin, which I have described in the books I have attempted to compose about these miracles. And though my speech is unpolished, I have still not allowed the things that I saw with my own eyes or learned from trustworthy persons to pass unknown. Here I shall relate merely what happens to the heedless, who after a miracle from heaven have sought for earthly cures, because his power is shown in the punishment of fools just as much as in the gracious working of cures. Leonastus, archdeacon of Bourget, lost his sight through cataracts that grew over his eyes, and when he altogether failed to recover it by going around among many physicians, he came to the church of St. Martin, and remaining here for two or three months and fasting continuously, he prayed to recover his sight. And when the festival came, his eyes brightened, and he began to see. He returned home and summoned a certain Jew, and applied cupping glasses to his shoulders, by the help of which he was to increase his eyesight. But as the blood flowed, his blindness revived again. When this happened, he again returned to the holy temple, and remaining there again a long time, he did not succeed in recovering his sight, which I think was refused because of his sin, according to the words of the Lord. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing befall thee. For he would have continued in health if he had not brought in the Jew in addition to the divine miracle. For such is the warning and reproof of the apostle, saying, Be not yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship have righteousness and iniquity? Or what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what portion hath a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement hath a temple of God with idols? For you are a temple of the living God. Therefore come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Therefore let this case teach every Christian that when he has merit to receive heavenly medicine, he should not seek after earthly help. 7. Death of the priest Sinach, one of the tribe of the Theophali. 8. Germanus, bishop of Paris, dies. As he is taken to be buried, his body bears heavily down on the street when the prisoners raise a cry, and when they are released, it is easily taken up again. 9. The recluse Kalupa dies. 10. The recluse Patroclus dies. 
He was very abstemious and always wore a hair shirt next his body. His eyes never grew dim. 11. And since our God always deigns to give glory to his bishops, I shall relate what happened to the Jews in Clermont this year. Although the blessed Bishop Avidus often urged them to put aside the veil of the Mosaic law and interpret the scriptures in their spiritual sense, and with pure hearts contemplate in the sacred writings Christ, Son of the living God, promised on the authority of prophets and kings, there remained in their hearts, I will not now call it the veil which dimmed the light from Moses' face, but a wall. The bishop prayed also that they should be converted to the Lord and that the veil of the letter should be torn from them. And one of them asked to be baptized on Holy Easter and being born again in God by the sacrament of baptism in his white garments, he joined the white clad procession with the others. When the people were going in through the gate of the city, one of the Jews, urged to it by the devil, poured stinking oil on the head of the converted Jew. And when all the people, horrified at this, wished to stone him, the bishop would not allow it. But on the blessed day on which the Lord ascends to heaven in glory, after the redemption of man, when the bishop was walking in procession from the cathedral to the church singing psalms, a multitude of those who followed rushed upon the synagogue of the Jews, and destroying it from the foundations, they leveled it to the ground. On another day the bishop sent messengers to them, saying, I do not compel you by force to confess the Son of God, but nevertheless I preach him, and I offer to your hearts the salt of wisdom. I am the shepherd put in charge of the Lord's sheep, and as regards you, the true shepherd who suffered for us, said that he had other sheep which are not in his sheepfold, but which should be brought in, so that there may be one flock and one shepherd. And therefore, if you are willing to believe as I, be one flock with me as your guardian, but if not, depart from the place. Now they continued a long time in turmoil and doubt, and on the third day, because of the prayers of the bishop, as I suppose, they met together and sent word to him, saying, We believe in Jesus, Son of the living God, promised to us by the words of the prophets, and therefore we ask that we be purified by baptism and remain no longer in this guilt. The bishop was rejoiced at the news, and keeping watch through the night of Holy Pentecost, went out to the baptistry beyond the walls, and there the whole multitude prostrated themselves before him and begged for baptism. And he wept for joy, and cleansing all with water, he anointed them with ointment and gathered them in the bosom of the mother church. Candles were lit, lamps burned brightly, the whole city was whitened with the white throng, and the joy was as great as once Jerusalem saw when the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles. The baptized were more than 500, but those who refused baptism left that city and returned to Marseille. 12. The abbot Braccio, a Thuringian and formerly a hunter, dies. 13. Great battle between Chilperic's duke, Desiderius, and Guntram's patrician, Mumulus. Desiderius is defeated. 14. After this, Merovich, who was kept in custody by his father, received the tonsure, and changing his garments for those which it is customary for the clergy to wear, he was ordained priest and sent to the monastery at Mans, called Aninsola, St. Calais, to be instructed in the duties of priests. Hearing this, Guntram Bozo, who was then living in the church of St. Martin, as we have stated, sent the subdeacon Rigolf to advise him secretly to take refuge in the church of St. Martin. And when Merovich was on his way, Galen his slave went to meet him from the other side. 
and since his escort was not a strong one, he was rescued by Galen on the way, and covering his head and putting on secular clothes, he took refuge in the temple of the Blessed Martin. We were celebrating Mass in the Holy Church when he entered, finding the door open. After the Mass, he asked us to give him the consecrated bread. Now there was with us at that time Regnamotus, bishop of the See of Paris, who had succeeded the Holy Germanus. And when we refused, Merovich began to raise a disturbance and to say that we did not rightly suspend him from the communion without the assent of our brethren. When he said this, we examined the case in the light of canon law, and with the consent of the brother who was present, he received the consecrated bread from us. I was afraid that if I suspended one from communion, I would become a slayer of many, for he threatened to kill some of our people if he did not receive the communion from us. The country of Tours has sustained many disasters on this account. In these days, Nicetius, my niece's husband, went with our deacon to King Chilperic on business of his own, and he told the king of Merovich's flight. On seeing them, Queen Fredegunda said, They are spies and have come to learn what the king is doing, in order to know what to report to Merovich. And she at once ordered them to be spoiled and thrust off into exile, from which they were released in the seventh month. Now Chilperic sent messengers to us, saying, Cast that apostate out of the church. If you don't, I will burn that whole country with fire. And when we wrote back that it was impossible that what had not happened in the time of the heretics should now happen in Christian times, he set his army in motion and sent it toward this country. In the second year of King Childebert, when Merovich saw that his father was set in this purpose, he proposed to take with him Duke Guntram and go to Brunhilde, saying, Far be it from me that the church of the master Martin should submit to outrage on my account, or his country be put into captivity for me. And going into the church and keeping watch, he offered the things he had with him on the tomb of the blessed Martin, praying to the saint to help him and to grant him his favor so that he could take the kingdom. At that time, Count Ludast, after setting many traps for him out of love for Fredegunda, at last craftily entrapped his slaves, who had gone out into the country, and slew them with the sword. And he desired to slay Merovich himself, if he could find him in a suitable place. But Merovich followed Guntram's advice, and, desiring to avenge himself, he ordered Merilief, the chief physician, to be seized as he was returning from the king's presence, and after beating him most cruelly, he took away the gold and silver and other valuables which he had with him, and left him naked, and would have killed him if he had not escaped from the hands of those who were beating him and taken refuge in the church. And later we clothed him, and having obtained his life, sent him back to Poitiers. Now Merovich charged many crimes to his father and stepmother, but although they were partly true, it was not acceptable to God, I suppose, that they should be made known through a son. This I learned to be so later on. For one day I was invited to dine with him, and when we were sitting together, he begged urgently that something be read for the instruction of his soul. So I opened the book of Solomon and took the first verse that came which contained the following. The eye of him who looketh at his father askance, the ravens of the valleys shall pick it out. Although he did not understand it, I believed that this verse had been given by the Lord. Then Guntram sent a slave to a certain woman known to him from the time of King Cheribert, who had a familiar spirit, in order that she should relate what was to happen. 
He asserted besides that she had foretold to him the time, not only the year, but also the day and hour at which King Cheribert was to die. And she sent back this answer by the slaves. King Chilperic will die this year, and King Merovich will exclude his brothers and take the whole kingdom. And you shall hold the office of duke over all his kingdom for five years. But in the sixth year, you shall win the honor of the bishop's office with the consent of the people in a city which lies on the river Loire on its right bank. And you shall pass from this world old and full of days. And when the slaves had come back and reported this to their master, he was at once filled with vanity, as if he were already sitting in the chair of the church of Tours. And he reported the words to me. But I laughed at his folly and said, It is from God that this should be sought. What the devil promises is not to be believed. He went off in confusion, and I had a hearty laugh at the man who thought such things credible. At length one night, when the watch was being kept in the church of the holy bishop, and I had lain down and fallen asleep on my bed, I saw an angel flying through the air. And when he passed the holy church, he cried in a loud voice, Alas, alas, God has stricken Chilperic and all his sons, and there shall remain no one of those who came forth from his loins to rule his kingdom forever. He had at this time four sons by different wives, not to speak of daughters. And when this was fulfilled later on, then I saw clearly that what the soothsayers promised was false. Now while these men were staying in the church of St. Martin, Queen Fredegunda, who already favored Guntram Bozo secretly for the death of Theodobert, sent to him, saying, If you can cast Merovich forth from the church so that he will be killed, you shall receive a great gift from me. And he thought the assassins were close at hand and said to Merovich, Why are we so spiritless and timid as to sit here and hide sluggishly around the church? Let our horses be brought and let us take hawks and hunt with dogs and enjoy the hunting and the open views. He was acting cunningly to get Merovich away from the holy church. Now Guntram otherwise was a very good man, but he was too ready for perjury, and he never took an oath to any of his friends but that he broke it forthwith. They went out, as we have said, from the church, and went as far as the house of Jokundiakus near the city. But Merovich was harmed by no one. And as Guntram was at that time wanted for the killing of Theodobert, as we have said, King Chilperic sent a letter all written out to the tomb of St. Martin, which contained the request that the blessed Martin would write back to him whether it was permissible to drag Guntram from his church or not. And the deacon Baudigiesel, who brought the letter, sent to the holy tomb a clean sheet of paper along with the one he had brought. And after waiting three days and getting no answer, he returned to Chilperic. And he sent others to exact an oath of Guntram not to leave the church without his knowledge. Guntram took the oath eagerly and gave an altar cloth as pledge that he would never go thence without the king's command. Now Merovich did not believe the sorcerers, but placed three books on the saint's tomb, namely Psalms, kings and the gospels and keeping watch the whole night he prayed the blessed confessor to reveal to him what was coming and whether he could be king or not in order that he might know by evidence from the lord after this he continued three days in fasting watching and prayer and going to the blessed grave a second time he opened the book of kings and the first verse on the page which he opened was this because you have forsaken the lord your god and have gone after other gods and have not done right in his sight Therefore the Lord your God has betrayed you into the hands of your enemies. And this verse was found in the Psalms. But thou hast brought evils upon them because of their deceitfulness. 
Thou hast hurled them down when they were lifted up. How have they been brought to desolation? They have suddenly failed and perished because of their iniquities. And in the Gospels this was found. Ye know that after two days the Passover cometh, and the Son of Man is delivered up to be crucified. At these answers he was troubled, and wept long at the tomb of the blessed bishop. And then taking Duke Guntram with him, he went off with five hundred men or more. He left the holy church, and while marching through the territory of Auxerre, he was captured by Erpo, King Guntram's duke. And while he was being held by him, he escaped by some chance and entered the church of the holy Germanus. On hearing this, King Guntram was angry and fined Erpo seven hundred gold pieces and removed him from office, saying, You held prisoner one who my brother says is his enemy. Now if you intended to do this, you should first have brought him to me, otherwise you should not have touched him whom you pretended to hold prisoner. King Chilperic's army came as far as Tours and plundered this region and burned it and laid it waste, and did not spare St. Martin's property. But whatever he got his hands on, he took without regard for God or any fear. Merovich remained nearly two months in the church I have mentioned, and then fled and went to Queen Brunhilda, but he was not received by the Austrasians. And his father set his army in motion against the people of Champagne, believing that he was hiding there. He did no injury, but he could not find Merovich. 15. Inasmuch as Clothar and Sigebert had settled the Suevi and other tribes on their land when Albin had gone to Italy, they who returned in the time of Sigebert, namely the men who had been with Albin, rose against them, wishing to thrust them out from that country and destroy them. But they offered the Saxons a third of the land, saying, We can live together without interfering with one another. But the Saxons were angry at them, because they had themselves held this land before, and they were by no means willing to be pacified. Then the Suevi made them a second offer of a half and then of two-thirds, leaving one-third for themselves. And when the Saxons refused this, they offered all their flocks and herds with the land, provided only they would refrain from attacking them. But they would not agree even to this, and demanded battle. And before the battle, thinking that they had the Suevi already as good as slain, they discussed among themselves how they should divide their wives and what each should receive after their defeat. But God's mercy, which does justice, turned their thoughts another way. For when they fought, there were 26,000 Saxons, of whom 20,000 fell, and of the Suevi, 6,000 of whom 480 only were laid low. And the remainder won the victory. The Saxons who were left took oath that they would cut neither beard nor hair until they had taken vengeance on their adversaries. But when they fought again, they were defeated with greater loss, and so the war was ended. 16. Machliavus and Bodic, counts of the Bretons, are succeeded by Theodoric and Warwick. 17. King Guntram loses his two sons. Easter is celebrated by some cities on March 21st, by others on April 18th. Guntram adopts his nephew Childebert, and they order Chilperic to restore what he had taken from them. 18. After this, Chilperic heard that Praetextatus, bishop of Rouen, was giving presents to the people to his disadvantage, and ordered him to appear before him. When he was examined, he was found to have property entrusted to him by Queen Brunhilda. This was taken away, and he was ordered to be kept in exile until he should be heard by the bishops. The council met, and he was brought before it. The bishops, who went to Paris, were in the church of the holy apostle Peter. And the king said to him, Why did you decide, bishop, to unite in marriage my enemy Merovich, 
who ought to be my son, and his aunt, that is, his uncle's wife. Did you not know what the canons have ordained for such a case? And not only is it proven that you went too far in this matter, but you actually gave gifts and urged him to kill me. You have made a son an enemy of his father. You have seduced the people with money so that no one of them would keep faith with me, and you wish to give my kingdom over into the hands of another. When he said this, a multitude of Franks raised an angry shout and wished to break through the church doors as if to drag the bishop out and stone him, but the king prevented them. And when the bishop Praetextatus denied that he had done what the king charged him with, false witnesses came who showed some articles of value, saying, These and these you gave on condition that we would plight faith with Merovich. Upon this he made answer, You speak the truth in saying you have often received gifts from me, but it was not for the purpose of driving the king from the kingdom. For when you furnished me with excellent horses and other things, what else could I do but repay you with equal value? The king returned to his lodging, and we being gathered together sat in the consistory of the church of the blessed Peter. And while we were talking together, Aetius, archdeacon of the church of Paris, came suddenly and greeting us, said, Hear me, bishops of God who are gathered together. At this time you shall either exalt your name and shine with the grace of good report, or else no one will treat you hereafter as bishops of God, if you do not wisely assert yourselves, or if you allow your brother to perish. When he said this, no one of the bishops made him any answer, for they feared the fury of the queen, at whose instance this was being done. As they continued thoughtful with finger on lip, I said, Most holy bishops, give your attention, I beg, to my words, and especially you who seem to be on friendly terms with the king. Give him holy and priestly counsel, not to burst out in fury at God's servant, and perish by his anger and lose kingdom and fame. When I said this, all were silent. And in this silence I added, Remember, my lord bishops, the word of the prophet when he says, If the watchman sees the iniquity of a man and does not declare it, he shall be guilty for a lost soul. Therefore do not be silent, but speak and place the king's sins before his eyes lest perchance some evil may befall him and you be guilty for his soul. Do you not know what happened lately? How Clodomor seized Sigismund and thrust him into prison, and Avidus, God's priest, said to him, Do not lay violent hands on him, and when you go to Burgundy you shall win the victory. But he disregarded what was said to him by the priest and went and killed him with his wife and sons. And then he marched to Burgundy, and was there defeated by the army and slain. What of the Emperor Maximus, when he forced the blessed Martin to give communion to a certain bishop who was a homicide, and Martin yielded to the wicked king in order the more easily to free the condemned from death, the judgment of the eternal king pursued him, and Maximus was driven from the imperial throne and condemned to the worst death. When I said this, no one made any answer, but all stared in amazement. Still, two flatterers from among them, it is painful to say it of bishops, carried the report to the king, saying that he had no greater foe to his purposes than I. At once, one of the attendants at court was sent in all haste to bring me before him. When I came, the king stood beside a bower made of branches, and on his right, Bishop Bertram stood, and on his left, Ragnamod. And there was before them a bench covered with bread and different dishes. On seeing me, the king said, Bishop, you are bound to give justice freely to all, and behold, I do not obtain justice from you. But, as I see, 
you consent to iniquity, and in you the proverb is fulfilled, that crow does not tear out the eye of crow. To this I replied, If any of us, O king, desires to leave the path of justice, he can be corrected by you. But if you leave it, who shall rebuke you? We speak to you, but you listen only if you wish. And if you refuse to listen, who will condemn you except him who asserts that he is justice? To this he answered, being inflamed against me by his flatterers, With all I have found justice, and with you only I cannot find it. But I know what I shall do that you may be disgraced before the people, and that it may be evident to all that you are unjust. I will call together the people of Tours and say to them, Cry against Gregory, for he is unjust and renders justice to no man. And when they cry this out, I will reply, I who am king cannot find justice with him, and shall you who are less than I find it? At this I said, You do not know that I am unjust, but my conscience knows, to which the secrets of the heart are revealed. And if the people cry aloud with false cries when you attack me, it is nothing, because all know that this comes from you. And therefore it is not I, but rather you, that shall be disgraced in the outcries. But why speak further? You have the law and the canons. You ought to search them diligently, and then you will know that the judgment of God overhangs you if you do not observe their commands. But he tried to call me, thinking that I did not understand that he was acting craftily, and pointing to the broth which was set in front of him, he said, It was for you I had this broth prepared. There is nothing else in it but fowl and a few peas. But I saw his flattery, and said to him, Our food ought to be to do the will of God, and not to delight in these luxuries, in order by no means to neglect what he commands. Now do you, who find fault with others for injustice, promise first that you will not neglect the law and the canons, and then we will believe that you follow justice. Then he stretched out his right hand, and swore by all-powerful God that he would in no way neglect the teaching of the law and the canons. Then I took bread and drank wine and departed. But that night, when the hymns for the night had been sung, I heard the door of my lodging struck with heavy blows, and sending a slave, I learned that messengers from Queen Fredegunda stood there. They were brought in, and I received greetings from the queen. Then the slaves entreated me not to take a stand opposed to her, and at the same time they promised two hundred pounds of silver if I would attack Praetextatus and bring about his ruin. For they said, We have already the promise of all the bishops, only don't you go against us. But I answered, If you give me a thousand pounds of silver and gold, what else can I do except what the Lord instructs me to do? I promise only one thing, that I will follow the decision that the rest arrive at in accordance with the canons. They did not understand what I meant, but thanked me and went away. In the morning, some of the bishops came to me with a similar message, to which I gave a similar answer. We met in the morning in St. Peter's Church, and the king was present, and said, The authority of the canons declares that a bishop detected in theft should be cast from the office of bishop. When I asked who was the bishop against whom the charge of theft was made, the king answered, You saw the articles of value which he stole from us. The king had showed us three days before two cases full of costly articles and ornaments of different sorts, which were valued at more than 3,000 solidi. Moreover, a bag heavy with coined gold, holding about 2,000 pieces. The king said this had been stolen from him by the bishop. And the bishop answered, 
I suppose you remember that when Queen Brunhilda left ruin, I went to you and said that I had her property in keeping, to wit, five parcels, and that her slaves came to me frequently to take them back, but I was unwilling to give them without your advice. And you said to me, O king, rid yourself of these things and let the woman have her property back, lest enmity rise over this matter between me and Childebert, my nephew. I went back to the city and gave one case to the slaves, for they could not carry more. They returned a second time and asked for the others. I again took counsel with your greatness, and you gave me directions, saying, Get rid of these things, bishop, get rid of them, for fear the matter may cause a scandal. I again gave them two cases, and two more remained with me. But why do you calumniate me now, and accuse me, when this case should not be put in the class of theft, but of safe keeping? Then the king said, If you had this property deposited in your possession for safe keeping, why did you open one of them, and cut in pieces a girdle woven of gold threads, and give to men to drive me from the kingdom? Bishop Praetextatus answered, I told you before that I had received their gifts, and as I had nothing at hand to give, I therefore took this and gave it in return for their gifts. I regarded as belonging to me what belonged to my son Merovich, whom I received from the font of regeneration. King Chilperic saw that he could not overcome him by false charges, and being greatly astonished and thrown into confusion by his conscience, he withdrew from us and called certain of his flatterers and said, I confess that I have been beaten by the bishop's replies, and I know that what he says is true. What am I to do now that the queen's will may be done on him? And he said, Go and approach him and speak as if giving your own advice. You know that King Chilperic is pious and merciful and is quickly moved to compassion. Humble yourself before him and say that you are guilty of the charges he has made. Then we will all throw ourselves at his feet and prevail on him to pardon you. Bishop Praetextatus was deceived and promised he would do this. In the morning we met at the usual place, and the king came and said to the bishop, If you gave gifts to these men in return for gifts, why did you ask for an oath that they would keep faith with Merovich? The bishop replied, I confess I did ask their friendship for him, and I would have asked not men alone, but, if it were right to say so, I would have called an angel from heaven to be his helper, for he was my spiritual son from the baptismal font, as I have often said. And when the dispute grew warmer, Bishop Praetextatus threw himself on the ground and said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, most merciful king. I am a wicked homicide. I wished to kill you and raise your son to the throne. When he said this, the king threw himself down at the feet of the bishops and said, Here, most holy bishops, the accused confesses his awful crime. And when we had raised the king from the ground with tears, he ordered Praetextatus to leave the church. He went himself to his lodging and sent the book of canons to which a new quaternion had been added, containing the canons called apostolic and having the following. Let a bishop detected in homicide, adultery, or perjury be cast out from his office. This was read, and while Praetextatus stood in a daze, Bishop Bertram spoke. Here, brother and fellow bishop, you have not the king's favor, and therefore you cannot enjoy our mercy before you win the indulgence of the king. After this, the king demanded that his robe should be torn from him, and the 108th psalm, which contains the curses against Iscariot, be read over his head, and at the least, that the judgment be entered against him to be excommunicated forever. Which proposals I resisted, according to the king's promise, that nothing be done outside the canons. 
Then Prytextatus was taken from our sight and placed in custody. And attempting to flee in the night, he was grievously beaten and was thrust off into exile in an island of the sea that lies near the city of Kutans. After this, the report was that Merovich was a second time trying to take refuge in the church of St. Martin. But Chilperic gave orders to watch the church and close all entrances. And leaving one door by which a few of the clergy were to go in for the services, guards kept all the rest closed, which caused great inconvenience to the people. When we were staying in Paris, signs appeared in the sky, namely, twenty rays in the northern part which rose in the east and sped to the west. And one of them was more extended and overtopped the rest, and when it had risen to a great height, it soon passed away. And likewise, the remainder which followed disappeared. I suppose they announced Merovich's death. Now when Merovich was lurking in Champagne near Reims and did not trust himself to the Austrasians openly, he was entrapped by the people of Therouan, who said that they would abandon his father Chilperic and serve him if he came to them. And he took his bravest men and went to them swiftly. Then they revealed the stratagem they had prepared and shut him up at a certain village and surrounded him with armed men and sent messengers to his father. And he listened to them and purposed to hasten thither. But while Merovich was detained in a certain inn, he began to fear that he would pay many penalties to satisfy the vengeance of his enemies, and called to him Galen his slave, and said, Up to the present we have had one mind and purpose. I ask you not to allow me to fall into the hands of my enemies, but to take your sword and rush upon me. And Galen did not hesitate, but stabbed him with his dagger. The king came and found him dead. There were some at the time who said that Merovich's words, which we have just reported, were an invention of the queen, and that Merovich had been secretly killed at her command. Galen was seized, and his hands, feet, ears, and the end of his nose were cut off, and he was subjected to many other tortures and many cruel death. Grindio they fastened to a wheel and raised aloft. And Kukilo, once count of King Sigebert's palace, they executed by beheading. Moreover, they cruelly butchered by various forms of death many others who had come with Merovich. Men said at that time that Bishop Egidius and Guntram Bozo were the leaders in the betrayal, because Guntram enjoyed the secret friendship of Frendagunda for the killing of Theodobert, and Egidius had been her friend for a long time. 19. Tiberius Caesar, his alms to the poor, and the treasures miraculously discovered by him. 20. An uproar arose against the bishops Salunius and Sagittarius. They had been trained by the holy Nicetius, bishop of Lyon, and had attained the office of deacon. And in his time, Salunius was made bishop of Embrun and Sagittarius of Gap. Having reached the office of bishop, they became their own masters and in a mad way began to seize property wound, kill, commit adultery, and various other crimes. And at one time when Victor, Bishop of St. Paul Trois-Chateau, was celebrating his birthday, they sent a band of men to attack him with swords and arrows. They went and tore his robes, wounded his servants, and carried off the dishes and everything used at the dinner, leaving the bishop overwhelmed by abuse. When King Guntram learned of it, he ordered a synod to meet in Lyon. The bishops assembled with the patriarch, Blessed Nicetius, and after examining the case, found that they were absolutely convicted of the crimes charged to them. And they ordered that men guilty of such acts should be removed from the office of bishop. But since Salunius and Sagittarius knew that the king was still favorable to them, they went to him complaining that they were unjustly removed and asking for permission to go to the pope of the city of Rome. 
The king listened to their prayers and gave them letters and let them go. They went to John the Pope and told that they had been removed without any good reason. And he sent letters to the king in which he directed that they should be restored to their places. This the king did without delay, first rebuking them at length. But, what is worse, no improvement followed. However, they did ask pardon of Bishop Victor and surrendered the men whom they had sent at the time of the disturbance. But he remembered the Lord's teaching that evil should not be repaid one's enemies for evil and did them no harm but allowed them to go free. For this, he was afterwards suspended from the communion because after making a public accusation, he had secretly pardoned his enemies without the advice of the brethren to whom he had made the charge. But by the king's favor, he was again restored to communion. But these men daily engaged in greater crimes, and, as we have stated before, they armed themselves like laymen, and killed many with their own hands in the battles which Mummelus fought with the Lombards. And among their fellow citizens, they were carried away by animosity, and beat a number with clubs, and let their fury carry them as far as the shedding of blood. Because of this, the outcry of the people again reached the king. The king ordered them to be summoned. On their arrival, he refused to let them come into his presence, thinking that their hearing should be held first, and that if they were found good men, they would deserve an audience with the king. But Segetarius was transported with rage, taking the matter hard, and being light and vain and ready with thoughtless speech. He began to make many loud declarations about the king, and to say that his sons cannot inherit the kingdom because their mother had been taken to the king's bed from among the slaves of Magnacar, not knowing that the families of the wives are now disregarded, and they are called the sons of a king who have been begotten by a king. On hearing this, the king was greatly aroused and took away from them horses, slaves, and whatever they had, and ordered them to be taken and shut up in distant monasteries to do penance there, leaving not more than a single clerk to each, and giving terrible warnings to the judges of the places to guard them with armed men and leave no opportunity open for anyone to visit them. Now the king's sons were living at this time, and the older of them began to be sick. And the king's friends went to him and said, If the king would deign to hear favorably the words of his servants, they would speak in his ears. And he said, Speak whatever you wish. And they said, Beware lest perhaps these bishops be condemned to exile, though innocent, and the king's sin be increased somewhat, and because of it the son of our master perish. And the king said, Go with all speed and release them, and beg them to pray for our little ones. They departed, and the bishops were released, and leaving the monasteries, they met and kissed each other, because they had not seen each other for a long time, and returned to their cities, and were so penitent that they apparently never ceased from psalm-singing, fasting, almsgiving, reading the book of the Songs of David through the day, and spending the night in singing hymns and meditating on the readings. But this absolute piety did not last long, and they fell a second time, and generally spent the nights in feasting and drinking, so that when the clergy were singing the matins in the church, these were calling for cups and drinking wine. There was no mention at all of God, no services were observed, when morning came, they arose from dinner and covered themselves with soft coverings, and buried in drunken sleep, they would lie till the third hour of the day. And there were women with whom they polluted themselves. And then they would rise and bathe and lie down to eat. In the evening, they arose and later they devoted themselves greedily to dinner until the dawn, as we have mentioned above. So they did every day until God's anger fell upon them, which we will tell of later. 
End of section 8.